From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Social networks exist everywhere, online, in real life, at work, at school, but we don't often consider how our networks of healthcare can be predetermined for us. Unknowingly, this trend has huge impacts on our healthcare spending without a direct link to outcomes. As healthcare systems become more complicated and networks become larger, Dr. Michael Barnett is looking to find a solution that will also result in better outcomes and improve efficiency. Dr. Michael Barnett is an assistant professor of health policy and management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a primary care physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital. So, Dr. Barnett, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You're a primary care physician as well as a researcher. One of your first published papers looked at patient sharing networks and the cost of care in U.S. hospitals. Could you tell us what patient sharing networks are? Patient sharing networks are really... Um, a different way of looking at the healthcare system and the data that um, health services researchers, which is my uh, my discipline, typically look at healthcare data. So a lot of the work that we've done to learn about the healthcare system comes from um, health insurance claims from large insurers. Like for instance, Medicare has data going back decades on you know um, tens of millions of um, enrollees in the program. Now, one way to look at it is to think of those data as just a record of different services that patients have gotten and how much they were paid and which doctors did them. Another way to look at it is that actually you can link together doctors by the patients that they have both seen in a particular time period. Okay, so like a primary care physician and a specialist, for example. Right. So primary care physician sees a patient, you know, three times in a four-month period, and then, you know, during that same period, they see their cardiologist twice. And so you could say, you know, we don't know exactly whether or not that primary care doctor and the cardiologist actually talk with one another and know anything about the other person, but they do share this patient. We do know that. Um, And... With just that little insight, you actually add this you know, enormous dimension of complexity in these data that reflect this very complex web of how the healthcare system's interconnected. The reason I'm interested in patient sharing networks and why I think there's you know, kind of a little sort of a little growing cottage industry in uh, health services research looking at them is that often our experience as physicians and patients is kind of getting lost in this web of the healthcare system and seeing lots of doctors and you know who's talking to whom and what does it mean to have a team that actually knows each other versus doesn't. To us, it seems like one of the only ways to capture that complexity um, in a way that does it justice is to actually take the network perspective and actually rise above just the way of looking at healthcare as just kind of a list of doctors who are seeing a patient at a given time. And could you tell us a little bit more about what you looked at in the study and sort of what the goal of the study was? The motivation for the study was we did this actually um, several years ago, back when in the health services world, all the rage was trying to understand variation in spending. So this was back when um, the Dartmouth Atlas of Healthcare was 
um, you know, talked about really quite a bit. Um, and so this was the um, groundbreaking research done by Elliot Fisher, Jack Weinberg, and many other colleagues, uh, John Skinner at Dartmouth, where they did a pretty descriptive analysis where they just looked at how much an average patient in Medicare cost across different regions in the country. And they looked at it in many different ways, looking at either total spending or end-of-life spending or how many um, primary care or cardiology visits people had. And what they found was basically without fail, there was enormous variation in the amount of care that um, an amount of spending that an average patient got in regions across the country with almost no demonstrable difference in their um, level of illness or the quality of care or their outcomes. Um, and so many people were scratching their heads trying to understand what actually uh, what actually drove this difference in care. You know, why, why was this happening? The reason we wanted to look at patient sharing networks is that we thought, well, maybe one potential explanation for all this variation is actually the extent to which a network of doctors in an area is very diffuse or concentrated. So um, I'll give an example. I could, as a primary care physician, I could refer let's say, half of my patients to other specialists, so very high referral rate. So um, if I have, if I see 200 patients, then 100 of them are seeing specialists. Now, those 100 patients, they could see 200 specialists together, right? Each of them could see two specialists, each of whom were separate. Mm -hmm. Or they could all see the same 20 specialists, right? And that each of them is basically spreading their care within a small group of people. And the difference between those two arrangements of a healthcare network are not trivial, and they're also basic, it's basically impossible to measure without having at least a little bit of a network framework. And so we thought that maybe um, comparing the difference between you know the spread of patients across a few versus many doctors, um, you know through referral patterns, actually might be a um, one of the kind of underlying mechanisms that generated increased spending because mm -hmm. the concept would go that. Um, patients who see many, many more doctors across like an entire region, um, their physicians communicate less, they're more likely to get duplicative care, they're more likely to get care from people who um, have different approaches to managing certain illnesses, and just more stuff is going to happen. Okay, so the, the idea is that if people see a wide, you know, like that 200 specialist scenario that because they're not talking to each other, the specialist isn't as aware of what has already been done and it causes more spending, like more care that maybe is not necessary? Yeah, so that's that's one mechanism. Um, another one is, so comparing like 200 versus 20, let's say in the group of patients that are seeing 200 specialists, there are, let's say, 30 cardiologists that are taking care of those people, whereas in the other, there are two, right? And so the 30 cardiologists are all going to have their own way of doing something. Right. And that's going to that's gonna span a spectrum because physicians are human, and we don't expect there to be zero variation between doctors. I mean, everyone is different, um, but the more doctors you have involved in patient's care, the more stuff happens. Whereas the patients seeing two cardiologists are almost by definition going to get like a relatively narrower spectrum of, um, of care decisions made about certain things because there's only two doctors who are largely responsible for that. Um, and so part of this is just mechanical. It's not necessarily that people are duplicating the same test over and over or purely that they're not talking with one another, but that if a group of patients is just seeing a huge um, span of specialists, just more different things will happen to them. And one interesting facet of this is that I think the average American consumer probably prefers the system 
where patients see many more specialists because nobody wants to be in a system where they feel like they're constrained to only see one of three or four people um, if they want a specialist. They want to know they have the entire menu open to them and they can see anyone. But the trade-off there is that then you have a system where a single PCP might have patients seeing you know, 20, 30 different cardiologists. And from your study, were you what kind of conclusions were you able to draw about you know, the effect of this these networks and whether or not they're spread out or not, how does that affect, uh, I mean, you were looking at cost, but were you also looking at quality of care? In the first study we looked at, um, it was really largely a spending and utilization. So basically how often people got hospitalized or the amount of care they use in the end of life. Um, and in subsequent studies, my colleagues have looked at more quality-focused um, outcomes like readmissions, um, um, emergency room visits. What we found was um, that metric of how many physicians do my patients see as a primary care doctor, which in the network lingo is called degree. We found that, first of all, that varied enormously across regions and across hospitals by you know five, six, seven-fold. Um, depending on where you, where you were. Um, and that was just the median. So in some areas in the country, the average panel of 100 patients saw 100 different physicians in a year, and in another part of the country, it could be 600 or 700 physicians. So first, there was enormous variation, but also that variation was um, strongly associated with overall spending in almost any metric that we looked at in Medicare. Um, and you know, it's very hard in these study designs to have something that's um, causal, where we can actually um, kind of move past just a pure association. Right. Um, though um, what I can say is that the um, association between this metric and um, variation in spending was stronger than you know most other things that we looked at um, or that were available um, to observe about these areas. And what are some of those other things? Because you're talking about a wide, you know, the entire country, which has many variations yeah. in density and time that people have to travel to get to yeah. doctors. So you can look at, you know, the physician supply in an area, how many physicians are there, how many hospitals are there, um, you know, population density, just anything you can observe about an area like the median income mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, you can also measure other aspect of how healthcare is delivered. Um, you know, it is a it is a complex question that I can't exactly answer, which, which is, you know, how many of those things are on the causal pathway um, between this concept of degree and spending versus just simply, um, you know, just just simply confounders. Uh, and that's that's a pretty that's pretty complex because this is not like a simple one to one relationship. Um, but I think f for us it was um, it was pretty. Uh, you know, we were surprised by the uh, magnitude of the association and just how how strong it was relative to other um, predictors. The other metric that we looked at, which is um, you know, a decent amount more sophisticated um, is when you have a network of physicians, you can look at more than just the number of other doctors that patient sees. You can also look at the position of physicians relative to one another in that network. So for instance, you could have a network where the way things work is there's kind of an outer ring of PCPs that are just all referring to this kind of clump of specialists, say, in a, in a hospital in the center, you know, a hospital in some metro area. And that could turn out to be a network where um, specialists end up being very central, um, where basically, you know, the path connecting any two PCPs almost always goes through, you know, specialists. Um, and we call those specialist center networks. 
then you could have actually the opposite scenario where basically there's tons, there's a lot more sharing between uh, primary care physicians in one way or another, and they're referring more to kind of like an outer ring of specialists. Um, and that would be a more of a primary care center network. So the idea is really um, kind of where is the, um, are patients more likely to bounce back and forth between specialists or back and forth among primary care doctors in one way or another? And what we, what we found was that there was a, um, a strong positive correlation between increased use of care and spending in the specialist-centered networks and the opposite for, for primary care-centered networks. Hmm. Um, and there's no mechanical reason why that actually would necessarily need to be the case. Um, it's pr it, it's, it is probably related to, though not exactly the same, as looking at um, primary care versus specialist supply in an area. So there are certain regions of the country where there are proportionally more specialists than primary care physicians, and you see similar relationships when you look at those metrics as well. Um, but to us, that was an interesting demonstration that um, it seems that's you know, a fairly high-order um, measure of how physicians were connected had a strong relationship with um, some outcomes that we think were very important. Uh, and what, are, what, what would those outcomes be? Uh, so that was spending uh, yeah. per patient and the use of um, care like hospital days and ICU days and things like that. So generally when the network is more specialist-centered, there's more spending, more hospital care utilization? Yeah, more use of stuff, like yeah. lots of stuff, expensive stuff. So when you have a specialist-centered network, does that necessarily indicate that there are fewer primary care doctors in an area? Not necessarily. Um, I will admit it's been a little while since I've looked at this, so I, okay. I don't, I don't know that we, <laughs> I don't know that we disentangled it fully. Um, but there's no, there's no require, just because primary care doctors or specialists are central in one network or another doesn't mean by definition that one should be more central than another. Now, if you have way more specialists than primary care doctors, it's probably a lot less likely that you're going to have a primary care centered network. Right, right. Um, uh, you know, just if you took random arrangements of networks. So I'm uh, not going to say there's no relationship, um, but there but there isn't necessarily a relationship that we would assume would be there by default. And so this conclusion, I mean, you said it. this was a little while ago now, but what are um, some sort of takeaways that you can make from this? What are the, Why is this important? Even though this is a while ago, um, you know, a lot of other people have been continue to pursue this work, including uh, the group I worked with um, when I did this, when I did that study, um, which has um, produced um, more analyses like this. And what we've consistently found is that the the more dispersed the more dispersed physicians' um, connections are. So basically, the more physicians their patients are seeing, and also the um, the looser a physician team is that's taking care of a group of patients. There's sort of like many different ways you can look at this. Um, but, you know, the big picture is basically the more fragments and dispersed either a network is in a whole region or caring for a single patient or a group of patients, the more expensive that care is, the more likely they are to be hospitalized, and their quality is no better or, if anything, looks somewhat worse. It almost never looks better. Um, and this has been replicated now by a few different groups and lots of different data sets, also um, by a few economists who have used you know, um, better, better causal approaches than we had thought of um, at the time. Um, so the takeaway here um, for me, and I think we really haven't fully realized this yet, is that um, there's an enormous, you know, we're still spending a lot of, um, 
a lot of energy in this country trying to redesign our care delivery system. And a lot of it is looking at how do individual practices work or how do individual hospitals work. So, you know, and which is not an easy problem. We haven't fixed it. Um, but, you know, how do you make um, primary care offices work together better as a team so that the physician and the nurse and the medical assistant and a social worker um, can actually use each other's skills efficiently and take care of a broader population, all those things, so kind of, you know, inter-teamwork. Um, and we've barely scratched the surface of a larger problem, which is how do you actually get, you know, kind of virtual teams of physicians working in different offices in a larger area, not even that big of an area, to actually communicate effectively and share patients in a way that actually makes sense as opposed to just being basically a random process mm. of which patient happened to see which doctor at a given time. And all the research that we've done indicates that actually, even though that process has basically no organizing principle for you know how individual patients go through the system, um, it is likely it could um, have a um, it's likely it could have a big impact in the care people receive. I think the policy impact there is really I think we need to consider that and actually start to think about it in designing delivery systems and in delivery systems actually um, um, examining how their patients receive care. But one problem is we're kind of I mean I think we're like a little bit ahead of our time, which is that we have such our healthcare system is preoccupied with much more basic issues and just how do you just make basic processes work well in healthcare that it's very hard to get to the higher order um, issue of how do you get this population of patients to see um, kind of the right group of specialists who communicate with each other and the primary care doctors. Yeah. But our research implies that like that's also probably pretty important and needs to be addressed at some point. So as a primary care physician that sees patients, how do you take these kind of research findings and implement them in your practice? So the way I think about it is, and it's, it's, it is tough, um, you know, because I'm just a single person in a system. <clears throat> but one way is I try to make sure that if I refer a patient to another specialist, that there is, you know, I have a discrete goal and I communicate that, I communicate that as best as I can to the patient and to the specialist. And the idea there is that if we have a clear goal um, articulated for why the patient's seeing that person, they're not just kind of getting captured in the orbit of another physician who's going to see them twice a year and just, you know, it's not exactly clear what they're working for, what they're accomplishing. They're just kind of seeing them because they did see them in the past. And that happens a lot, actually. Um, the other thing is, you know, there's lots of talk about, uh, there's a lot of focus uh, increasing focus on deprescribing for patients. So, you know, um, how do we figure out when we can take people off of medications that they may not need anymore or may um, no longer um, be working as well as they used to? And so I think the same way, you know, we can kind of deprescribe physicians, which is a lot of patients are seeing tons of physicians and they're not necessarily getting benefit from seeing that person anymore. Like, you know, if somebody's blood pressure is very well controlled and they were seeing a cardiologist because their blood pressure is very hard to manage, and if the regimen's fine, they don't have to see the they don't have to see the cardiologist every six months just to check in and make sure their blood pressure is still okay. You know, the, the primary care doctor can you know refer them back or touch base with the cardiologist when things get worse, but otherwise they just don't have to see that person. Um, and it's basically kind of reducing those unnecessary touches. Um, from my perspective, it it just collectively reduces the burden on my patients and myself of the amount of uh, medical interactions my patients have that 
may not be working towards them being healthier and happier, uh, which I think, uh, which is what we all care about. And we don't care about just people seeing doctors. Right. And the more they see doctors, the more stuff is going to happen like we just talked about. Hmm. So one of the other thorny issues that you've looked at um, is reducing opioid use disorder. Um, and you have some interesting work that looks at sort of the mixed results and negative unintended consequences of some of these policies. Could you give us some examples of uh, recent policies aimed at reducing opioid use disorder that have had mixed or negative results? So this is a more recent research interest of mine. Um, You know, the same way I was really interested in understanding why you know, healthcare spending and use varied so much across the country. Um, as a resident, I also saw basically how um, chronic opioid use and opioid dependence was um, just this incredible challenge in the primary care system. And um, we had been actually taught um, quite explicitly that, um, you know, chronic opioid use was like the compassionate way to treat pain for patients. And it was immediately clear as soon as I had my own primary care panel and started seeing more patients in the hospital that it seems to cause many more problems and be much more complicated for patients than uh, the problems that, than the symptoms that presumably solved. So that's what got, that's what got me interested in this question. Um, and so for the past, um, for the past uh, three years or so, I've been uh, looking a lot at opioid prescribing and now moving more into understanding opioid use disorder itself. And so th- um, the project you're mentioning was a, um, um, a thought piece I did uh, along with a study to look at, um, to kind of ask a broad question of what are we doing with policy to try to restrict opioid prescribing. Um, and the reason, the reason that's pretty topical now is because, um, of course, the opioid epidemic is constantly in the news, and it seems like the dominant policy response that um, has really um, been the main thrust for state legislatures and, you know, and, and the federal government has really been talking about how do we get doctors to prescribe fewer opioids. And there's a lot to talk about in terms of whether or not that's actually the right way to reduce opioid use disorder, and I think it probably isn't, um, but it's been the major focus. And even and even if we take that as sort of the main goal of these policies, it turns out that we don't have a great track record at knowing exactly which policies make that, um, make that change effective. Um, so it turns out that opioid prescribing has fallen enormously since around since its peak in around 2011, 2012, which is when I graduated from medical school, right at its peak. Um, it's fallen about 40% since then. But it's not clear at all which policy has actually been associated with that change specifically. Um, what we did is we looked at um, a number of different policies that have um, um, that have been tried over the past you know, five years or so and just did kind of a a selected survey of you know high quality uh, research in the area, and what we found was pretty consistently there weren't there were very few policies that seemed to consistently be associated with decreased prescribing uh, without any other unintended consequences. So um, just to give an example, um, a very commonly cited policy is called um, called um, uh, prescription drug monitoring programs. And these are basically state-level databases that track controlled substance prescribing. And so the idea is that physicians can look up patients before they prescribe an opioid or a new opioid and see whether or not that patient might be um, misleading them about where they've gotten opioids in the past, whether or not they're, they're doctor shopping and things like that. 
So it looks like um, these programs called PDMPs for short, um, it looks like they might work, but they definitely only work when you uh, mandate their use by physicians. And that wasn't really known until relatively recently. Mm. Um, and there was there had really been no evaluation process in place by any of these states to actually look and see whether these things worked. And that was really a trend that um, I'd seen across many of these programs, which is that um, a lot of these policies are put into place with like you know very strong philosophical beliefs, um, and people felt like this was the right thing to do, but basically had almost no follow up in terms of. Um, asking the question of whether or not this policy achieved the ends that they were planning for it to. It's, you know, basically people just turned their attention elsewhere once the law was passed and just kind of moved on to the next topic. The issue with PDMPs is that when you mandate physicians to check them, right, it takes actually a fair amount of physician time. And it's actually become really frustrating for a lot of doctors because, um, you know, like they have very restrictive security requirements and then you have to change your password all the time. Mm -hmm. And if you forget your password, it like adds, you know, big, you know, you have to go into a different window when you're in the in the clinic room. It's just, it's very awkward and frustrating. Right. And you have a short visit anyway, so it just right. compounds that. And it's like very awkward if we have to spend, yeah. you know, four or five minutes of our precious, you know, 15, 20 minutes right. together basically just trying to negotiate logging into a system right. and entering their information and figuring out, you know, particularly if it's a patient who we have like a very low level of concern for, like we've known them for a while, like, mm -hmm. but we just have to do this still. I don't know that anyone has really asked the question of whether or not those mandates and the benefit from those mandates has actually kind of merited that extra physician cost. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just, it's just, it's something that I think is discussed, but just has not really been part of the, par part of the policy debate. So then there are other policies out there, um, for instance, things like um, dosage limits, pill limits. There are um, other policies like criminalizing doctor shopping or giving pharmacists um, authority to require you know, authorization for um, certain types of opioid prescriptions. Um, and a lot of the research has found basically like no effect of any of these. Um, there are also more and more programs to basically notify doctors about their opioid prescribing habits, which is what we looked at in this particular study that um, in, that you mentioned, which is that in part of this comprehensive opioid legislation in Massachusetts called Chapter 55 that was passed a few years ago, um, the state mandated that the Department of Public Health send doctors a letter that told them how many opioids do you prescribe and how does it compare to the rest of your peers and your specialty in the state. And um, I got the first wave of these letters. And what I noticed was that the letters seemed like completely uninformative because they didn't adjust for the number of patients that a physician saw. Mm. So actually, it was largely a measure of just how much did you work? How big was your patient panel? And the data was also presented in like a particularly um, poorly compelling way. It just, <laughs> it, just, it, just wasn't, it just wasn't very easy to read. It was, hard to you know, it was hard to actually get the password to open the file and all of that. So we wanted to look at basically whether or not these letters seem to change the prescribing habits of anyone or high prescribers. And we used um, some um, electronic health record data from doctors across the state to look at it compared to neighboring states, and we found no effect. And the our takeaway there was really just pointing out that um, you know the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, which is administering this, has you know a, lim a finite number of resources. And they were mandated to do this by the state, and it seemed like a good idea, but it seemed like you know the primary the primary goal of everyone was just to get this thing done, right? Mm -hmm. And just like just to get something done to say we did something exactly, like you know, the, like it's not that this was a bad idea, um, it's just that it was a promising idea that probably needed to be done well for it to be successful, and needed to actually be monitored to see if you actually 
achieved any goal you wanted. And if not, then you could either scrap it or redesign it or just decide what to do next. But none of that was really the case. Um, and, um, you know, from my perspective, if we're going to be designing policy in this incredibly sensitive area that's also um, really quite, quite controlling for how physicians um, prescribe, you know, we need, to, we need to actually have a clear goal and do some kind of monitoring of what happens. And we have the data. It's not, not asking for something impossible. It's just, it just needs to be built into the culture of how we design these policies. You know, I think the Department of Public Health was not um, very happy with, um, uh, was not super happy with us publishing this, but mm. um, I still feel that, um, you know, it's, you know, we have to point out when we are just, we're just spinning our wheels on a policy. I just don't see why it helps anyone, even if it feels like the right thing to do. Um, you know, why waste our time on things that physicians will ignore or find unhelpful? Is there any uh, work that you're doing now or that you have coming up that you're excited about that you're looking forward to? Uh, well, I'm doing something in, in the space of both of these projects, actually. So mm-hmm. for the patient sharing network stuff, um, one thing that my co-authors and I have recognized is that the research that kind of inspired us to start this patient sharing network um, um, studies, um, a lot of that data is actually now like, you know, 15 to 20 years old, Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, like when we, when we started working on it, it was, you know, kind of slightly newer research that was still poorly understood. And now the research that kind of informed what we did is like quite out of date. And so what we um, are starting to look at is how has the dynamics of how physicians um, have shared patients with other physicians and the way that, the way that patients see primary care and specialist physicians physicians across the U.S., how has that changed in the past 20 years? Um, you know, I think with health reform and new payment right. models, I think there's the concept that we are incentivizing health systems to improve coordination of care, you know, whatever that means. And that hopefully what that means is that patients aren't just seeing more and more physicians without any other, without any clear reason. Um, and so that's that's something that we are looking into. And then another set of projects we are doing um, around opioid use disorder. One is uh, I'm starting to look more into the um, into um, the availability of treatment for opioid use disorder, which is like you know as a single policy issue, probably one of the biggest gaps we have in this country. Um, and so we've been doing um, secret shopper surveys where we're calling either buprenorphine um, prescribers, um, buprenorphine being the, you know, probably the most readily available and effective treatment for opioid use disorder that's okay. currently so sort available. of like a methadone type? Uh, yeah, exactly. So it's, 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 very, it's, it's similar in many ways to methadone, but it doesn't have nearly as many um, restrictions to its distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that's, so that's one thing that we're doing, as well as we're um, planning on doing some um, similar calls to uh, um, detox and residential treatment facilities as well. Um, to understand, you know, what are the what are the barriers that patients might encounter in seeking treatment, um, and then another thing that we're doing, I'm doing, is moving from looking at prescribing itself to looking at the population of patients on chronic opioid therapy, of which there's still millions in the U.S. Um, who are kind of caught between a rock and a hard place with these new restrictive um, prescribing policies because it's not easy to just get off of opioid therapy right. um, but a lot of these policies are really not designed with these patients in mind mm-hmm. and so there's a kind of an increasing increasingly loud um, uproar about um, the um, 
um, you know, hostility of the healthcare system towards patients who are on chronic opioid therapy and what happens to them. And so uh, we're trying to do just a lot of basic epidemiology and trying to see how this population has changed over time, um, understanding for those who are discontinued from their therapy, like is that actually done within guidelines, which is basically not stopping people cold turkey, but actually tapering them over time. Um, and are there any negative effects for people who are stopped off of that therapy? Well, thank you, Dr. Barmet. Uh, okay. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Next time on Think Research. So there are organisms in the environment that are present at the time when an open wound presents itself. They also move in and they colonize the wound, but they don't create an infection. What we'd like to do, and which surprisingly has not been done, is we'd like to characterize the organisms that move in but don't cause infections. Dr. Victor Neal discusses the skin microbiome and how we should be rethinking wound healing. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.